After a week of break, so to speak, we are back in our series going through the book of Jonah. This beautiful, uh, very familiar perhaps, Old Testament book of prophecy. Last time we uh, met, or we're, we're, last time we were with Jonah, we, we left him when he was in the belly of a great fish. Some great fish in the middle of the Mediterranean. That's where Jonah was. And of course, at the end of chapter number two, we have those great words, which is, The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of some great fish did a work on him. And now we are greeted with an interesting turn. A turn in which we are able to perhaps notice some of the most surprising things in all of Scripture. That's what Jonah is, by the way. Jonah is a book that's full of surprises. It's hard if you just read it straight through and just read it over and over again. Even with all of the familiarity that we might have with a book like Jonah, it still catches us off guard. It's hard to be bored with a book like Jonah. Almost like any other like whodunit mystery novel, so to speak, Jonah is a book that keeps you guessing. For example, instead of God's chosen prophet going where he is commanded, what happens? Surprise, surprise, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And instead of being swallowed by raging waves when he says you have to toss me overboard in order to calm the sea down, what happens? Surprise, surprise, he's swallowed by a fish. <laughs> Who saw that coming? No one, I dare tell you. And that's just chapter, that's just the first two chapters. Indeed, the surprises of Jonah continue to come and continue to increase with scale and with scope as the story develops. Spoiler alert, for example, instead of being discarded, tossed into sort of the heap bin of of other failed prophets, what occurs with Jonah when he's vomited back up on dry land? He's given a second chance to follow God's will. Talk about surprising. And instead of being annihilated, much like Sodom and Gomorrah, for all of the evils that they have inflicted upon humanity, what happens with Nineveh? They are redeemed. They are allowed to repent, and all of the disaster that was coming for them is forestalled. It's relented. In many ways, the surprises of this third chapter of Jonah are some of the most surprising In all of the Bible. And I think that's something that I've uh, loved and cherished to notice throughout the scriptures. Is that our God, God Almighty, the Lord. You know one of his greatest delights? One of his greatest delights is to surprise the likes of you and me. What we often think God is going to do. Or what we often expect God to do. He often does not do. And this happens right from the very beginning of all creation. You want to know one of the, the biggest, most surprising surprises in all of history? Is that when our first parents, uh, instead of being blasted into oblivion for their blatant disobedience against God the Father. What does he do? What does he tell Adam and Eve? That I am going to make a way to redeem and rectify your rebellion by my own doing. (laughs) The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the deceiver, of the serpent. On the very ground where our first parents rebelled against God, he gives them a promise of just surprising mercy. 
Instead of an eternity of judgment, I'm offering and I'm promising you that I'm going to make a way to make all of this right. And from then on, from Genesis 3 onward, we just have a series of surprises. A series of surprising revelations, one right after the other. I think the Apostle Paul puts this quite well. Uh, Go with me really quick to the book of 1 Corinthians. As we're segueing into Jonah chapter 3, I want you to notice uh, just how Jonah chapter 3 sort of uh, is echoed almost in this first chapter of Corinthians. I've brought you to this passage multiple times and I, I can't seem to escape what Paul is here talking about in perhaps this most surprising sort of choice of God. He brings out this reality. Notice verse 25. 1 Corinthians 1.25, Paul writes this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God surprisingly chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What is more surprising than the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of all things, the one who spoke and everything came to be, that same God selecting foolish and failing folk like you and me to represent him. That's surprising. It should catch us off guard. He doesn't send an angel To come and preach what he wants us to learn. He doesn't send some other spirit. He doesn't give us uh, all these sort of signs in the sand where we can read his words. He gives us a printed word in front of us. And he calls failing sinners like you and me to come and declare his message. How? What's more surprising than that? I don't think anything really. See, I think the surprising nature of God is on full display throughout the Bible, his surprising choice. And I think that's, there's no better example of that than in Jonah chapter 3. Because although the attention is often given in this third chapter to that runaway prophet who finally obeys, or the attention is given to uh, that, that horrible, awful nation finally or actually repenting, and rightly so, we should give attention to both of those truths. But you see, I think the greater attention, the greater focus of this part of the story, chapter number three, ought to be given to God himself. Because here we're, we're shown exactly the type of God we have. If you had to answer the question, what is God like? How would you answer that question? What would you say to someone who's asking you, what is the God of the Bible like? Or even you could ask, what is the God of the Old Testament like? Very often, the God of the Old Testament is caricatured as what? A grumpy old man who just wants everyone to get off his lawn and he's just ornery and grumpy. But actually, what we're shown here is the most surprising revelation of all is that God is not at all like that. 
He catches us off guard in many ways, but perhaps I want you to notice this morning three ways in which I think we are shown exactly who God is and why he likes to surprise us by what he does, by what he reveals, by how he reveals himself to us. So number one, what is God like? We have a God who employs screw-ups. We have a God who employs screw-ups. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that flippantly. I say that with all of affirmation that that's exactly what God has revealed of himself in his word. It's his way. To use and to continue to use those who have made a mess of their own lives to be his representatives. And there are several examples of this throughout the scripture. Just think about Moses. The venerated, lauded leader of the people of Israel who, yes, leads the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Who was he? A runaway murderer who fled from his people and spent 40 years in a wilderness before he was chosen to lead God's people. Or think about the one who comes after him, David. Yes, the greatest king in all of Israelite history. The one who brought Israel into the peak of his powers. Who was he? A murderer and an adulterer. Who wrecked his family life for the rest of the time that he was alive, basically. Or think about Peter. A disciple, a follower of God, a, a follower of Jesus that was in the inner circle of Jesus' followers. He, who was he? He was a disciple who, who had a never-ending case of foot and mouth disease. <laughs> and who is he? He's chosen to be one of the chief voices to establish the church of Christ. As it's getting off the ground in the book of Acts. We could go on for hours, literally. Noticing uh, one example, one example after another example, all of these examples of those sinners and saints who've made a wreck of their lives, who were surprisingly chosen and employed by God to be in the service of his will and his wisdom. And I think there's no better example of this than right here, the prophet Jonah. Because I think there's something... Amazingly, uh, something amazing that happens in these opening verses of chapter number three is something that perhaps is not obvious to you at first, but I hope it will be, which is just the fact that these couple verses in chapter number three are almost a direct quote from chapter number one. We're just basically getting the same thing over again. Notice verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Compare that with the first two verses of chapter number one, and basically what you have, after all of these events, where are we? We're back at square one. (laughs) We're right back to where we began, with Jonah receiving a word from the Lord as he's being called to preach that word to those who desperately need to hear it. (laughs) The only difference here in chapter number three is that instead of running, instead of fleeing from the presence of the Lord like he did the first time, Jonah obeys. Verse three. So Jonah arose, and instead of fleeing to Joppa, he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He brings this word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh, the very people that he thought were unworthy to receive a message like this, a message from Yahweh, no less, are now being given that message. What's changed? What's the only thing that's changed from chapter 1 to chapter 3? It's that Jonah knows that he, too, is unworthy of that message. That's the only difference. He's been through the ringer, so to speak. He's been to the pit uh, and back again. And now he's finally come to that conclusion and realizes that, yes, that sojourn in the stomach of the fish, it did a number on Jonah's view of himself, at least for a while, as we'll get to in chapter 4. But here it forced him to own up to all the ways that he screwed up his opportunity and his life, that the opportunity that God had given him. Ran away, flushed the call of God down the toilet, so to speak. And yet what occurs? What happens in this moment? Instead of uh, just being jettisoned and scrapped, God gives him a second chance. I love those words in verse number one of chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Aren't you glad to read those words? I know I am. That God didn't just write, a, a, sort of take a pen and, and a, or a sharpie even and just scribble out Jonah's name. All right, he's done. Now on to the next one. Got to pass that guy by because he, he passed me by. So obviously I'm going to move on to the next guy. No, God gives him another opportunity to follow him. That's who our God is. He is a God of the second and the third and the tenth chance. That's who he is. And if he's not, then I for sure am without any hope at all. I for sure am without any hope at all. If God doesn't employ screw-ups to come and declare his message that comes with, uh, with a, a message and a promise of salvation for other screw-ups, then I'm, I'm the, the one without any hope at all. And I'm sure that you would be forced to say the same thing. You see, that's the wonderful thing that we are able to see throughout all of Scripture. As you go from one page to the next, and you go from one book to the next, and you go from one character to the next. The God of the Bible is always shown to be who? A God who is not a one-strike-and-you're-out kind of God. That's not who He is. Rather, He shows Himself as what? As it says in that wonderful verse, Exodus 34, 6, which you should bookmark. He is what? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's patient. You know that your God is infinite in patience? And that may be hard to believe or hard to even fathom as we lose our temper at the drop of a hat when someone cuts us off or when something else happens that doesn't go our way. When, God forbid, that the internet doesn't load that web page as fast as a split second. <laughs> What's wrong with the internet? Our God is infinite in patience. Even with ones like you and me who keep bumbling and fumbling all over ourselves. Who keep tripping up. He patiently works in us and with us until what? Until we come to grips with the fact that his ways and his words are best. They're the only way. They're the only words that matter. 
That's what Jonah finally realized. And oftentimes, what has to happen? As we noted a couple weeks ago, what has to happen before we come to that realization? Sometimes we have to be put flat on our backs until we realize that. But God is, is urging us, sort of wooing us to, to see that exact fact that his words and ways are the best and they're ones that lead us into fullness of life. See, that's who Jonah was introduced to. After he was spat back up on the beach. And God basically says, hey, I have a job for you. It's basically the same thing as I told you the first time. <laughs> this is the type of God that we have. A God who employs sinners and screw-ups to be the ones to shout his name from the rooftops. Can you fathom that? That, yes, fools and failures, uh, the, the likes of which are, are, includes you and me, are called to proclaim the faithful love of God the Father. What a marvel! What a surprise! And sometimes, yeah, we can get into our heads. God, there's got to be someone better. You're exactly who God wants to speak his news to others. Exactly where you are, wherever that may be. You may think, and we, we've, we've talked about this before, you know. I, I don't have a, you, know, you may be thinking, I don't have a ministry position. Yes, you do, right? Exactly where you are. Yeah, even if you're a seventh grader in school, right where you are, that's your quote-unquote mission field. That's where God has specifically placed you. Don't get ahead of God. Don't rush to be in college and be like, yes, then I can serve the Lord. Or don't rush till you retire and then say, yes, now I have all the free time in the world to serve the Lord. You are right where you are specifically because God has deemed it necessary that you, right where you are, be the person to speak to people in your life, in and around your life, that God never runs out of second chances for screw-ups. And maybe you can testify quite well to that. I don't know. I'd wager you could. You are where you are to speak that message. It's a message that God Surprisingly enough, in his love and his grace for sinners, employs screw-ups. But also, number two, we, surprisingly enough, have a God who loves to emancipate the supervillain. And I know I'm being kind of cute and coy with that title. But I think it fits the general conception of the Assyrians in these days. Assyrians were the bad guys. Capital B, capital G, bad guys. They were the terrorists of the ancient world in those days with a litany of accounts that I barely even hesitate to repeat in a setting like this. All of their conquests and exploits are filled with unmentionable levels of violence and cruelty. And indeed, they were so brutal. Their brutality is amongst the most unrivaled in all of history, perhaps even only rivaled by Genghis Khan himself. And this sort of makes it so surprising that these exact ones, the Assyrians of Nineveh, these ones who were known throughout the world as being some of the most vicious people alive, these ones who were, could rightly be called the supervillains of those days, they themselves 
are brought to their knees by nothing but the word of the Lord. Notice verse 4 again, back in our text. Jonah, he began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, Yeah, forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Although we only have five words of Jonah's sermon, I likely believe that he preached a lot more than that. This is perhaps just the gist of what he preached to those people. And yet, remarkably enough, despite these words, despite how blunt they are, what happens, it leads to everyone in that great city, from the greatest of them to the least of them, to repent again. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor bees, herd nor flock, taste any. Anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. A city-wide revival sweeps over Assyria, this Assyrian city known as Nineveh. Interestingly enough, historians and academics have spent a lot of time debating whether or not the repentance of Nineveh is genuine or real or, or whatever. If you didn't know that there's debate about that, well, yeah, there is. I don't know why, if I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes people like to draw the fact that God's name here mentioned in verse number 5 and mentioned in verse number 8 is basically just the generic name Elohim for God. So it's not a personal name, and they go on and on about that. There's also no records from this era of history, roughly the 8th century B.C., from which we can ascertain whether or not there really was a prophet named Jonah who went to the city and preached and led Assyrian, an Assyrian a city known as Nineveh to, to get on their knees and cry out to God, cry out to Yahweh himself. Well, it's no wonder because there are barely any records from this era of history at all in terms of Assyrian history. So there's, it's, it's no surprise that we don't find a record of a nation like Assyria having a city like Nineveh repenting to a god of the Hebrews. Not only are, are much of the records of history lost from this time period, but wouldn't you think if you were in a nation like Assyria, you wouldn't want that leaking? I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to believe that this repentance is genuine. Especially because Jesus himself didn't think so. You don't have to go there. We're going to go there in a couple of weeks, but in Matthew 12, Jesus mentions this very scene with Jonah going to Nineveh and leading Nineveh to repentance. And he uses the positive example of Nineveh repenting to draw out Jesus' own people in his own day who were refusing to hear the message that he had for them. Which is just to say, if Jesus didn't think their, if Jesus thought that their repentance was genuine, I would rather side with that. And I think another way in which people love to try and draw this idea that Nineveh didn't actually repent is just the, the, the words that we read from Nahum 
If you flip over a couple of pages to the book of Nahum, it's a three-chapter prophecy. All against who? Nineveh. A couple of decades after Jonah, another prophet, Nahum, goes to that same city and calls out against them for their apparent rebellion. Look at Nahum 2 verse 13 where it says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots and smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. And I will cut off your prey from the earth and the the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is surprising, is it not? How do we get from sackcloth and ashes to I am against you? Well, I think there's a very perfectly fine answer for all of this. Which is just that in the same way. That the people of God can go from being reformed by the very words of God to being overtaken by the Babylonians. Go to 2 Kings. You don't have to go there right now. But read 2 Kings chapter 22 through 25. And you have a, a very quick demise in just a couple of years. Where the people of God go from revival to being overrun by Babylon. Which is just to say, it only takes a very short amount of time for people who believe and confess to have a generation after them not believe and confess the same things. All of which to say is that Jonah's preaching brought Nineveh to a very real revival. To a very real moment of repentance When, at God's prompting, they are shown the evil of their ways and they put on a kingdom-wide display of contrition. That's what it means when it says they put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. It was a physical sign of mourning or repentance. With sackcloth being an incredibly uncomfortable material to try and sit in. With the irritation of that and the lowliness of sitting in ash being being a, a visible and physical demonstration of the guilt and the lowliness of the heart. It, this, this act appears multiple times in scripture. I, I think of 2 Samuel chapter 12 when after David's uh, blown up his own life, that's exactly what he does. He sits in sackcloth and ashes and he repents. All of which to say, I think all of this corresponds to a genuine movement of repentance in the people of Nineveh. Down even to their words of very fragile hope. As they say in verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This isn't a, a verse that's meant to cast doubt on whether or not God will be merciful to them. Rather what it is, it's a recognition that they have zero ground on which to stand to argue or to demand that God accept them. They are not part of the covenant relationship with God and his people. Instead they are Gentiles receiving a word from the Lord and given an opportunity to repent. And they are realizing that their only hope is trusting that God will be gracious to them. And surprise, (laughs) he is. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Of course, we have to admit that, yes, it seems that Nineveh uh, fails to remember this in years to come. But don't let it distract you from this moment and the surprise of this moment. That, yes, right here, the supervillains are saved. (laughs) 
The ones who were thought to be too far gone. The ones who were thought to be irredeemable because of how violent and how wicked and how treacherous they were. How are they treated with mercy and patience and steadfast love? Why? Because that's who God is. The Bible tells us so over and over again. I'm reminded of the words from Psalm 51. You can go with me or you can just write it down. Psalm 51 verse 17. What does David say? When he's repenting to the Lord after he has screwed up his life. What does he say? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You will not turn away a broken and contrite heart. Yes, even a broken and contrite supervillain's heart. (laughs) He doesn't turn them away either. The Bible is a book of good news. And the good news is what? It's an announcement that there is no one. There is absolutely no one who is beyond, who is outside of the saving scope of God's redemption in his son Jesus Christ. No one is outside of it. No one is beyond the borders of what God hopes to do by redeeming the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's no one who can't be saved? There is no depth of sin that the cross cannot sound. That's what the hope of the gospel is. That's what the hope of this book that we have in front of us is and says to us. That yes, even for those that we think cannot be saved, they are the precise ones that the message of salvation should come to and be told. Your sins and mine, along with the sins of the whole entire world, have been covered and canceled by the saving death Of Jesus. And when we get to heaven, what's going to happen? We are going to be greeted, yes, not only by the Savior, but by a reunion of victims and supervillains alike who have been made into the family of God. I always think about that in the in the in the in the book of Acts. When Paul is redeemed after having, yes, treated the church of God with contempt and derision and violence. He was a terrorist in his days, tolling people off because they happened to believe in Jesus as the Christ. And when he gets to heaven, the very same people that he led to death are going to receive and welcome him as a brother in Christ. Can you imagine the reunion that's going to happen in that place? Because that's who our God is. That's who he is. (laughs) He's a God who rescues the people that we think can't be rescued. He even rescues you and me. We have a God who employs screw-ups. We have a God who emancipates supervillains. And lastly, number three, we have a God who embodies salvation. This to me, I think, is this last surprise is the most surprising of all. As God takes notice of the people of Nineveh repenting and turning from their evil way. And instead of bringing disaster on them, what happens? God turns the disaster away. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, 
And they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. There's been no shortage of debate surrounding this verse and others that contain the same words. Specifically on that phrase, how to make sense of the idea that God relented. The word relent here that's used in the Hebrew is used 108 other times throughout the Old Testament. And specifically, it's used mostly in the context of changing your mind. And in fact, in some Bible translations, perhaps the one you have in front of you, you might have it read that God repented or that God regretted. That sounds odd, doesn't it? This is not the only instance of this occurring. You could find another instance of it in Genesis chapter 6. You don't have to go there. But when God sees, when the Trinity sees, when the Godhead sees that the wickedness of man was just ballooning out of control, what does he say? The Lord regretted and or repented that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, Genesis 6.6. 6. Or if you go a thousands, thousands of years later to 1 Samuel chapter number 15, when Saul has completely sort of fumbled the opportunity to be the first king of Israel, what does God say? He says, I regret or repent that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. These are odd verses, are they not? How is it right to say that God repented? That sounds weird. Can God really regret something that he has done or put into motion? Does, or even perhaps we should ask this question, does God change his mind? Well, the short answer is no, of course. God is categorically opposed to change. He knows nothing of it. God does not have regrets like you and I do, nor is he given to changing his mind. In the same exact chapter, the prophet Samuel says what to Saul? 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, The glory of Israel, which is God himself, will not lie or have regrets, for he is not a man that, she, that he should have regret. <laughs> so what's going on here? How can God be said to regret making Saul king while also being, saying, also being said to having no regrets at all? There's nothing contradictory here. I want you to see that and know that for certain. From our perspective, there are definitely times when it appears as if God has somehow changed in how he's dealing with us. And I think this is especially true in the scene with Nineveh as suddenly they are being told disaster is on the horizon. And instead, what happens? They are delivered. But the truth is what? And that's the whole time, God has not changed one single bit. Not even the most minuscule degree. It's the sinners who've changed. Not the one who's rescuing them. It's the sinners who have changed. If there is ever any ounce of change in any part of our lives, we are the ones who are changing, not God. Very definitively, we can say that. As God himself says, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That doesn't leave any wiggle room. Ours is a God who remains who he always has been. For all of eternity, he is who he is. And who is he? Exodus 34.6, the Lord, the Lord 
A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you didn't get the hint, Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. If you didn't get the second time, Nehemiah 9.17. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 86.15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Joel 2, 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Do you think God is trying to tell us something? (laughs) If you didn't get it the first time, maybe you get it the sixth time. That ours is a God who has positioned himself throughout all of history as a God who does not change. And he does not change his mind. He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and patience and grace. And he's taken it upon himself to tell us that over and over and over again. He is a God who is busting at the seams with patience and mercy and forgiveness. For yes, even the very worst of the worst. He is a God who is gushing with salvation. That's who he is and that's who he always will be. He is infinitely perfect in holiness and grace. And he has put this word of revelation on repeat in his word. As we've already seen, but also more than that, what occurs? He puts skin and bone to this revelation. (laughs) See, Jesus gives us a flesh and blood look at the God who embodies salvation coming close to those who need saving. (laughs) This is who our God is. He shows us exactly who he is in word and deed. And neither of them can be changed. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? See what occurs. What's occurring here? What's, what does it mean by God relented? It just means that the people of Nineveh took the opportunity to make a change to repent and turn to the Lord who does not change. The character and demeanor of God is revealed to be one that always tends towards salvation. His judgment, yes, is true and holy and just and certain, but it is not what he desires most. If you want to get to the bottom of God's heart, you will always find mercy and salvation springing up and spilling over onto sinners. His judgment is sometimes forced upon us by our own inaction, by our own rebellion. Jeremiah, go with me to the book of Jeremiah really quick. I want you to see that this has always been the case. Look at Jeremiah chapter number 18, as the prophet lays this out for us so clearly. Jeremiah 18, look at verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. 
If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you. And devising a plan against you, return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. You see what is occurring? He's showing what his heart is. It is in my heart that you turn to me. It is in my heart that you stop pursuing wickedness and evil and wrong and return to the one who loves you with an unending love. To the one who is waiting that you turn around. You see, what God desires most is that every single sinner repent and believe. That's who he is. And he never changes from that. We are the ones who change. We're the ones who waver and waffle. We go from spiritual highs to spiritual lows. We go from times when we feel amazingly close to God and the Lord. And we're reading our Bible and we're getting in the word. And we're spending time in prayer. And we're doing all the things. And then we go through other seasons where we feel incredibly far away from God. But you know who doesn't change despite all of that vacillation? Despite all of that fluctuation in us? It's God. He remains the same. He is always a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For those who need To be loved. You and me. Who are desperate for that. Our God never changes. He is always a God who embodies salvation. And it is only those who spit and stiff arm the salvation of God that is extended to them. Those are the only ones who undergo judgment. He is constant in his pursuit of us. That's who this God is. And when we repent and turn around, what do we find? We find that God has never changed. That's what I, I love about these scenes in, the, in these Old Testament prophets. Jonah especially, but you could go to Jeremiah, you could go to Isaiah. What is their message? Their message is always, just turn around. I feel... Like we fear oftentimes that if we repent, we're going to find a God bearing over us, looking to smack us around a little bit more. We're scared of the God that we're going to turn around and find. And whether that's from our own imagination, whether we've been deceived into thinking something wrong about God, but sometimes I think we're scared to repent because we're fearing who we're going to turn around and see. And every single time, the prophets are reminding us, you have the same God that you would turn to. And if you turn around, you're going to find the same God who, is a, who, who he's always been. A God who has stationed himself in perfect, holy, righteous grace. Who is just waiting and delighting to embrace supervillains and victims and screw-ups alike. And wrap his arms around them and bring them close to his side. That's who he is. 
We've used this example before in the book of Jonah, but I think it fits so perfectly here. It's like the prodigal. Who was waiting? The same father. The father who had willingly gave all that he had to his two boys was waiting there again to, yes, give all that he had to his wayward son who is now returning. And in the same way, yes, Nineveh is this wayward, uh, wayward nation who is returning and repenting. And the same father, the same God is greeting them. And yes, when you repent and turn, the same God, the same heavenly father is waiting for you. He's waiting as one who is ready to receive the ones who are tired of running, the ones who are tired of of faking it, the ones who are uh, tired of trying to make it on their own. He's the one who is never ceasing to surprise us with that posture of grace that's always ready to embrace us. And receive us as his sons and daughters. That's who you turn. That's when you, when you turn and repent. That's who greets you. That's who's waiting for you. Yours is a God who never changes his mind about you. He's made up his mind in Christ. Christ is the yes and amen of all of God's words. And in Christ... God's mind is made up that he is ready and willing to receive into the likes of you and me. The second time, third time, tenth time, maybe even more. Sometimes I feel like we fear that we can run out of chances with God. You don't have to raise your hand if you fear that. Man, I'm running out of chances I got nine lives. I'm on number eight. Better not screw it up again. Or God's going to toss me to the side. If you've ever been made to feel like God is ready at a moment's notice to toss you in the scrap heap, you don't know this God of the Bible. He is not a God who turns away sinners. He is not a God who stiff arms people who are coming to him with a broken and a contrite heart. He will not despise. My friends, this is who our God is. He employs screw-ups and he emancipates supervillains and he embodies salvation for the worst of the worst. And what is his invitation? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friends, this morning, if you don't know this God, I invite you to know him. You can know him personally this morning. You can know him as your redeemer. Just as what happened to the people of Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah here this morning. You can know for certain that your God, that the God of everything is, yes, your God. And he's made up his mind about you. That your God is a God of salvation. Let us pray.